We have done several messages from the book of Revelation. And what we're going to do with the help of the Lord is that we're going to continue studying this book now for several months. Today, I want to step back for just a moment and present some material in regards to the structure of the book that I think is going to be helpful to us in the upcoming messages. And then the plan, with the Lord's help, is to pick up with chapter 6 and to work through the rest of the book. And we're going to take it in large segments. So I've preached on chapters 4 and 5. And then we looked at the issue of the mark of the beast. So we'll jump in at chapter 6, probably in three weeks, Lord willing, and move forward from there. But as a result of preaching those few messages, I've had some people ask the question, so what perspective are you coming from in regards to the timeline? Where do these things fall in time? And of course, this is one of the big questions. And it's one of the big debates. So as we approach this, I don't want us to forget some of the things we've already looked at in regard to the book of Revelation. One, we need to see Revelation as a picture book, not a puzzle book. God is speaking in pictures. And in each of these visions that are given to the Apostle John, we can find key and central points, which are the main points of the vision, much like the parables, and that the parables had main points. And we can find those more easily, and then as we work our way down to the finer details, we should become more and more humble, and less and less dogmatic, in my opinion. Because the reality is that there is much figurative language. There are many very visual and striking images in the book of Revelation. And there's been much disagreement amongst very godly men, very godly scholars throughout the ages. But I have been nothing but encouraged by studying the book because I think that we can see the big picture and we can have much agreement on the big picture. And... I pray that the messages we've already examined have been encouraging to us. Well, what I want to start off examining today is that I believe that as we look at the book of Revelation, that we can see that it is structured in seven different segments that are parallel to one another. I'll explain what that means as we go along. Many read the book of Revelation as if it is sequentially outlining what will take place in the future. So you read chapter 5 and the things in chapter 5 come before what will happen in chapter 6. And you read chapter 6 and the things in chapter 7 follow in time and space chapter 7. I don't think that's the proper way to approach the book and we're going to look at it today from the perspective of seven different segments which contain oftentimes in each segment information about the church age that we live in right now and then work their way forward to the final judgment. 
And as we look at these, I think we're going to see elements of descriptions of the final judgment in most of these segments. So they're parallel with one another. They're snapshots of one another. Think of it this way. There can be different vantage points and perspectives from people that witness the same event. And you can get accounts of that same event. And those accounts don't contradict one another, but they give the information in slightly different ways or a little bit more information or less information or focus on a particular aspect of the event. So you might, for instance, talk to some or watch videos, recordings of those who survived the Holocaust. And they may have been in a different part of Europe as the battles were taking place. And they might be focusing on different battles or different events or their own experience and where they ended up. But it's a cohesive whole, even though you're getting those different vantage points or those different snapshots. There was a movie, actually, called Vantage Point, And it was about a terrorist attack. And in that movie, you have the perspective of a secret service agent, you have the perspective of the terrorists, and it keeps rewinding, going back to the beginning, and then following the perspective of individuals who were all involved in the same event. I believe the book of Revelation does this. And we're going to examine that today. So, the sections, I believe, and in some ways this message is going to be a little more teachy than preachy, but we're going to examine the word of God and God will be glorified in this. These sections, I believe, are broken down as follows. First of all, chapters 1 through 3 are the first segment. Then we have chapters 4 through 7. Then we have chapters 8 through 11. Then 12 through 14. Then we have 15 and 16 as a segment. Chapters 17 through 19, and then 20 through 22. And we're going to just briefly take a look at some of these, at each one of these, and just a few of the details and some of the evidences for these being segments that need to be read as segments, and that these, many of them, contain information about the church age that we're in now, and the final judgment, many of them, but that it doesn't flow well if we, if we read it as everything being future, for instance, from chapter 4 on. So in this first segment, 1 through 3, we see the introduction given and the vision of the Son of Man, of Jesus, that John is given, and that John is writing the book to be given to these seven churches. And then we see the seven churches. Now, these were actual churches in history. It is interesting that the Lord chooses seven of them to write to. Remember, numbers are very symbolic in the book of Revelation. Seven represents completion. Were there more churches that could have been written to? Yes, there were. Could it have been less? Yes. The Lord chose the number seven. One of the things that, as we work through today, I also want us to understand is that 
there are spiritual principles contained in the book of Revelation that apply to us today. Okay? A lot of times Revelation is read as if the majority of the things in it are only for a generation of people future to us after the church has been raptured out. And I think that misses some of the glory and the value in this book, that this contains spiritual principles which apply to us imminently, immediately in our own lives and circumstances and situations. So obviously with these seven churches that are written to, we can look at those churches and the messages written to those churches and we can say there are principles here which apply to us. If I've lost my first love, then I need to repent of that. If I am living in materialism and greed, I need to repent of that. If I've been corrupted by false teaching, I need to repent of that. And remember, the book of Revelation was written to real people in real history who are facing and going to face persecution for the faith. And it's written with the message over and over again, overcome, overcome, overcome. And you see that in these seven churches, this message to him who overcomes. And then there are promises like eating of the tree of life and wearing the crown upon one's head. And those things are symbols or pictures of everlasting life with the Lord saying, don't give in, don't give in. The book of Revelation proclaims that God is sovereign over all of human history and Christ has secured the victory and those who are in Christ win. They overcome and it's given then to encourage people to overcome. It was written to John's contemporaries initially and it was directly applicable to their lives. It's not reserved for a future generation of Jews, for instance. I really think that we have to look at it this way to see it in its historical context appropriately. So in one through three, we see that first segment and those three churches. And there are principles which apply to churches throughout the ages. Then the next segment in chapters four through seven we see the throne room scene. We see Christ who is worthy to receive, to reach out and take the scroll from the hand of him who sits on the throne. And we see he is the one who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll. This scroll is written on the front and the back. And I won't preach the whole sermon again, but I believe the scroll is representative of God's sovereign purposes to be carried out in this world. And it's saying that Christ is the only one who is worthy ultimately to carry out the sovereign purposes of God. So we see a picture of the exalted Christ and then these seals that are broken. And as these seals are broken, we see conquering take place. We see conflict on the earth in chapter 6. We see scarcity on the earth. There's widespread death, but notice... It mentions there a fourth. So verse 8, 6, 8. I looked and beheld, behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him and power was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword. One reason I bring that out is that when we see the trumpet sound, it mentions a third of the earth there. So 
these segments are parallel to one another, but there's also a progression in the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowl judgments. You see a progression of intensity of judgment. But at the same time, I believe that these are referring to each set of these various judgments that come upon the earth throughout church history, not just waiting for end time final judgment. Okay? But notice this as you look down at the end of chapter 6. So this is getting towards the end of what I believe is the second parallel segment in Revelation. And start with verse 12 of chapter 6. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Now, just a quick note. Notice it says that the stars, that they fell to earth in a future chapter, in a different segment, it mentions the stars were darkened and did not give their light. Now, if we're reading this woodenly, literally, and sequentially, we would have an issue there. Because, well, of course they're not giving their light. They've already fallen from the heavens. But you see, it is a parallel picture, and it's referring to similar things, just from a slightly different vantage point or perspective. Okay? Now, one of the things about the book of Revelation is that it's filled with imagery which already has a precedent in the Old Testament passages of Scripture. And cosmic disturbances in the Old Testament, such as in the book of Isaiah, are used to refer to the fall of great earthly powers. So Babylon is judged, and God talks about the, the sun not giving its light, and the moon being darkened and turning to blood, and the stars winking out. That is describing an event that already happened in history, the fall of the nation of Babylon. So, earthly powers, dynasties, oftentimes, are represented in the scriptures by the figures of the heavenly elements, the sun, moon, and the stars. And when those earthly powers are judged and destroyed, God speaks of that in the terms of the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, stars falling, those types of imageries. It's, it's symbolism. It's figurative. It has a precedent in the Old Testament scriptures. Okay? Revelation is filled with imagery and symbolism. Well, notice here, though, as we work our way down, then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountain and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now notice this in verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. That terminology is indicative of the final judgment. Now, there have been many days of the Lord. The book of Joel has as a main theme the day of the Lord. 
Days of the Lord are days of judgment. And there have been many of those throughout history. But there is one great day of wrath of God. And that's the final judgment. So this, I believe, is speaking about the final judgment when the Lord returns and the dead will be raised and they will be judged. This isn't talking about a lesser judgment, in my opinion, because notice that the great day of his wrath has come. If you look over to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, we see this day spoken of. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In chapter, in chapter 4, we see the return of Christ spoken of, and we see the resurrection spoken of. And then chapter 5 gives us more details about what's going to take place in that same event. So chapters 4 and 5 are talking about the same event in history. They're not talking about two separate days. So there's a, a parallelism there. Okay? Like I'm making the case for this parallelism in Revelation. Similarly, there's a parallelism in Genesis 1 and 2, right? Genesis 1 and 2 both speak about, but from a different vantage point, the same events, you see? So... That's what we're looking at. But notice this in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, beginning with verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You're sons of light, sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. I believe this is referring to the same event as spoken of in Revelation chapter 6, when it says the great day of God's wrath has come. Okay? Now, back in Revelation in this segment, I see it. I believe that at the end of chapter 7, we also get a glimpse of the eternal state and the comfort and glory of the saints in the eternal state. So if you look to chapter 7 and begin with verse 14, it says here, And I said to him, Sir, you know who these are. And he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The eternal state, living in glory. We had this repeated at the end of Revelation as well, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Oh, but hasn't he already done it? You see, these are parallel segments that go over many of the same events from a slightly different vantage point sometimes or giving a little bit more information. 
I want, to, I want you to uh, just see as, as we look at these following segments, the end of these, and the references to the judgment that is to come. So, again, 4 through 7 is a segment, and then I believe that 8 through 11 is a segment as well. Look at the end of chapter 11. Beginning with verse 15. Okay, so one of the evidences I'm presenting for this parallelism is that the majority of these segments have references to the final judgment, which occurs at the return of Christ in the resurrection of the dead. And that each one of these have references to that. Now, if we're reading Revelation as if it's sequential in time, we would expect only to see that at the end of the book. But we see it throughout, over and over again. Look at the end of chapter 11. Begin with verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. Notice that. Your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Saying, this time has come. Well, didn't we already see that when it mentioned the great day of the wrath of God? Yes, we did. Notice this then. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail. Now, what do we see in chapter 12? The beginning of the next segment. The birth of Jesus. You see, it doesn't progress forward to the next event sequentially in our time and space, but it goes back in time and it refers to the birth of Jesus and then moves forward again. Because notice this, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That can be no one but Christ. Did, did not Satan try and destroy Christ when he was born? Satan is the dragon. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared. You see, this very clearly goes back to the birth of Christ. Now, to be fair, those who read the book of Revelation as more sequential and outlining history in sequence will acknowledge that, yes, this segment does go back to the birth of Christ and then move forward from there. And then they would disagree with the rest of what I'm presenting that the other segments do that as well. They'll say, well, this is one place for it. But at the very least, here's a clear illustration that Revelation is not an unbroken sequence. And so I, I think this does support 
what I am presenting to us. But again, in particular now, looking at the fact that with these sequences, and I believe the last, or or these parallel sections, the last six sections, I believe, refer to the final judgment, every single one of them. So let's continue. We've seen from chapter 6, we've seen here from chapter 11. Now let's go to chapter 14, which is the end of the next segment. Chapter 14, and begin with verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Sickle, representing harvest. You think about Jesus' parable of the wheat and the weeds, and the harvest, which represents the final gathering in, and then judgment and separation. Sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle, and another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. This is talking about the final judgment when the damned are being cast into hell. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. See, clearly references to final judgment here. The wrath of God being poured out widely upon the earth. Jump very quickly again. Then we're going to skip one segment. And jump to 19. Nineteen is the end of another segment. And look to verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Clearly Christ. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And notice this, and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. You see the similarity there in the, in the terminology. But hasn't that already taken place? <laughs> yes, it's referring to the same event, though. It's referring to the same event, the final judgment. 
And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, all people, free and slave, both great and small. You see, again, very comprehensive language. I don't think this is referring here to a local, isolated event. Neither do I think that the other references are local or isolated events because they use broad terminology. The great day of God's wrath has come. Christ treading out the winepress of the wrath of God. Here, all men, no matter what their status or station, being judged. Now we can jump back to the segment 15 and 16. Here we have the bowl judgments. I think this segment focuses more specifically and intently on the great judgment of God being poured out because it mentions the fullness of the wrath of God being poured out. So when you have the seals and the trumpets, you see things like a third of the earth and a fourth of the earth struck. But then 15 and 16, the fullness of the wrath of God being poured out. So there's a parallelism, but again, from different vantage points, there's also a progression and intensity. And so it's pointing out, sometimes focusing on One time during this era, on the positive side, we see that in chapters 20 through 22. Chapters 20 through 22 start with a reference to the beginning of the church era after the completed work of Christ, but then it focuses predominantly on the glory of the end times and the eternal state. Okay, so there, even though it has beginning to end of the history of the church, it focuses more specifically on that glorious eternal state. 15 and 16 focuses more specifically on the wrath of God being poured out in these bold judgments. Because we see in verse 1, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them the wrath of God is complete. It's complete. So we see that poured out. Okay. If you look to then the last segment, Revelation chapter 20, we see here the final judgment referenced as well. I believe in each of these segments, these last six segments that we've looked at, saving for the first segment, we see the final judgment referred to. And it's the case in this last segment. Revelation chapter 20, beginning with verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. 
The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. These other segments deal with the wrath, of full wrath of God being poured out. They deal with great battle and God's enemies being destroyed. This one focuses from the perspective of the throne of judgment. But then what is the end result? The enemies of God being cast into the lake of fire. The judgment taking place. So these are all pictures that show us the same event, but some of them look at it from slightly different vantage point. The vantage point of the battlefield compared to the vantage point of the throne, for instance. But it's referring to the same events. So that's one line of evidence, I believe, that shows that these are segments and they're parallel segments. Here's another while we're here. And this is uh, a parallel time segment. So judgment, time, and then battles. Those are three of the things I'm going to focus on here. Judgment, time, battles. Judgment, times, battles. I believe chapter 11 is the end of one of these parallel segments. Notice at the beginning of chapter 11 and verse 1, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot. Now notice this time that's given. 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days. 1,260 days is the same as 42 months, and it's three and a half years. So notice that at the end of this segment, it mentions this time frame and what's happening in regard to the Gentiles and the treading out in the holy city here. Now, I can't preach every one of these segments. We'd be here for the next year. So I know that brings up lots of questions about, okay, what's going on there and what does that represent and all these things. But notice then, go to chapter 12. Now, we've already seen from the beginning of chapter 12, right, that that clearly jumps back and it's looking at the birth of Jesus Christ. Notice the time frame that is given in verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. It's the same period of time. And notice what happens. War breaks out in heaven and then the saints are persecuted by the dragon, Satan. This is the same period of time. It is in these two segments outlining the same period of time, not sequentially progressing to a different period of time 
in the future to chapter 11. It's going over the same period of time. Now, I'll just give you a hint. It's three and a half years. What's the number of completion in Revelation? Seven. What sounds significant about three and a half in comparison to seven? It's half of it. So it's an, it's an incomplete period of time. It's not a perfect period of time. This was given as a sign of hope to believers that you're, the sufferings and the trials that are going to overcome you will not go on forever. It's just three and a half, not seven. Okay? So I, I think that's where that's coming from. But you notice the point that I'm making, though. It's the exact same period of time that's mentioned, but it's a time that would be considered toward the end in chapter 11, but then back toward the beginning and moving forward in chapter 12. I believe, though, that this is speaking about the same period of time, not two different periods of time, because of the similarity in these numbers. Now, so there's a time evidence. So judgments, time, and battles. I think we see the same battles mentioned and they're in two different segments. Two different segments here. So, look first of all to chapter 16. So this is the end of the bowl judgments in chapter 16. Notice this, this is very significant once again. And I'm saying I believe this is at the end of another one of these parallel segments. Okay, now notice the terminology, verse 14. For they are spirits of demons performing signs who go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now we've already seen the great day of God Almighty mentioned all the way back in chapter 6. Right? It's the same day that's being spoken of. It uses the same terminology. Again, it's recapitulating. It's parallel. It's giving us another snapshot or view of the same time in history. And then notice this, what is said. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Is that familiar to anyone? First Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5. In chapter 5, it talks about God coming... Jesus coming as a thief and saying that for us who are awake and watching, it will not be caught unawares, right? This is talking about the, the final coming of Christ and the final judgment. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Sound familiar to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? Not being caught in drunkenness and revelries and whatnot on that day? <laughs> And they gather together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Armageddon. So there's a, there's a battle mentioned. But now go to chapter 19 and verse 19. And I believe that this is at the end of another segment. But 19 and verse 19, notice this. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. There's that battle again, making war. 
I think this is referring to the same battle, the same war. Now, jump to chapter 20, which is at the beginning of another segment. And verse 7, Now when the thousand years have expired, has expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Here we have war and battle mentioned three different times. It's in three different segments, and it's referring to the same event. It's referring to the same event, just giving a slightly different vantage point. So we put all of it together and we get a fuller picture. It's like in the Gospels. You see the same events in Jesus' lives, sometimes given in all four Gospels. And each Gospel oftentimes has a slightly different vantage point. And we'll give just a little bit more information or a little bit more detailed in one, a little bit different information in another, but we're not saying, oh, well, those are four different events. Those are all the same event. Right? So I, th- I think there's a lot of evidence for this view, and I presented the judgment mentioned in six of these. I've mentioned the time frames being the same and referring to the same period of time in two different of these segments that is mentioned as well. So I really think that we do well to read Revelation in this way. Again, if you're taking notes, these segments, I think, can very logically break down into chapters 1 and one through 3 is segment 1, 4 through 7, segment 2, 8 through 11, 14 through, um, or 8 through 11, 12 through 14, 15 and 16 as a segment, and then 17 through 19 and 20 through 22. And the book then really flows when you look at that and you don't have issues where you're looking at, wait a minute, haven't the stars already fallen from the sky? So why is it saying here that the the stars are darkened out? How could they be darkened out if they've already fallen from the sky? Say, well, it's, it's referring to the same things. It's just giving a slightly different vantage point or perspective on the same things. Oh, well, it says the great day of the, the wrath of God has come. All the way back here in chapter 6. So what about chapter 20? What about all these other chapters in between? Well, they're referring to the same thing there. The same thing. And so in all of this, seeing that these segments most of them contain things that happen shortly after the ascension of Christ. One of them, even referring to the very birth of Christ himself. I think this then gives a lot of help and understanding to what we see in chapter 1. Chapter 1. And verse 1, when it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. Oh, now wait wait a minute. If we're reading the book from chapter 4 on and saying, that's all still future even to us, then how do we understand that there are many things spoken of which will shortly take place? 
Well, we would all agree that this book contains things that will take place in the very end when Christ returns. Unless one is an absolute heretic and denies the final bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ, everyone within the various views sees events in chapter 20 as referring to final judgment and the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down. So we all say that there's some things that weren't going to shortly take place in time and space to John's contemporaries. But if we have seven different parallel segments, which most of them contain events that happen very shortly in time and space to John, then that makes sense here, does it not, of this statement that there are things which will shortly take place, which will quickly take place. I I believe it does. I believe it does. So I think this helps us to really be honest and, and wrestle with these time texts, like shortly, and yet understand as well that there are some things which are still future to us. So, again, evidence is for this judgments, these time texts, and the battles. I want to wrap this up today by reminding us, I think I briefly mentioned this in the first message, of the four main approaches to interpreting the book in history. I'm talking about interpreting the book. When I say four approaches, some of you might be thinking automatically words that have mill in them or millennium in them. I'm not talking about that. That's a, that's a different subject, a more narrow subject, the subject of the millennium and what is referred to in Revelation chapter 20. Mill meaning a thousand, thousand years. No, I'm talking about a broader perspective to the book of Revelation. There have been four main views throughout history for how to approach it. And maybe you know what some of those are. One is the preterist perspective. One is the historicist perspective. One is the futurist perspective, and then there's the spiritual or ideal perspective, okay? The preterist perspective says that the majority of the book of Revelation, as a matter of fact, most of them will say all the way up to the end of chapter 18, refers to events that happened prior to and including what happened in AD 70 when the Jewish economy was destroyed by the Roman Empire. And so from the preterist perspective, one is looking at the book and saying, when did this take place against the Jewish people prior to AD 70? So that's the primary question of interpretation. And they'll say things like these segments, which I believe show language clearly talking about the final day of God, the judgment. They'll say, no, that's referring to A.D. 70. And the judgment that came on the Jewish people by the Roman emperor led by Titus when the temple was finally destroyed and the Jewish economy was decimated as prophesied by Jesus Christ himself. When he said, not one stone will stand upon another from this temple. Okay, so that's the, that's the preterist perspective. I believe as, as I look at these segments, and we looked at 
six of these segments which spoke about judgment, I think the terminology in these segments is just too broad to be talking about a localized event at AD 70. That's my opinion. I have great respect. This is within the Christian camp for those that approach the book of Revelation in this way. But I think those statements are just too broad, and I think we find their parallels like in 1 Thessalonians, where it's clearly talking about the final coming of Christ. And so I don't think the preterist perspective is the best approach. The historicist perspective sees the book of Revelation sequentially outlining human history. And so in the historicist perspective, much of the book of Revelation has already taken place, and it's taken place sequentially. It's outlining things that will take place in human history. So, for instance, in chapter 9, when it talks about the pit being opened, and out of the pit coming creatures with scorpion-like tails and faces like men and hair like women, and that those creatures have crowns on their head, the historicist perspective will say that is the rise of the Muslim Arabs who decimated Christendom. And see, the crowns represent turbans because the Muslims wore turbans. And so that's something that already took place in time and space and history to us. And they'll look at, like, in chapter 11, the eating of the little book by John. They'll say that's the time of the Reformation, and that's the Bible, and how it was sweet to God's people, but it was sour in the belly representing the, the popish empire and how they hated the word of God. Well, again, I think when we see these parallel segments and the evidence that I've already presented, I think that that shows that this view is not a good view to look at it sequentially. Secondly, and, and this is just me, again, there are godly, godly people that hold to this view, what, what is your guiding rule for where these events fall and what events these are? There is none whatsoever in the text. So some people would say, you know, you can say, oh, well, those, that refers to the Arabs in this era. And I could say, no, it refers to Hitler. There is absolutely no way to know who could possibly be right because the text just simply doesn't present it in that fashion. There'd be no precedent in scripture before or after. And again, my opinion, holding to that humbly, because this is within the Christian camp. And there, there were many at the time of the reformers who held to the historicist view. Well, that's the preterist view, the historicist view. The most common view today in Modern evangelicalism is the futurist perspective. The futurist perspective says that the majority of Revelation is future to us. So, within the futurist camp, you have, of course, which is a, a very popular common view today, what is called premillennial dispensationalism. And in the premillennial dispensational schema, you have the church being raptured out in a secret rapture so God can then go back and fulfill his promises to the Jews. 
And those from that perspective are in the futurist camp, and they will see from chapter 4 on taking place after the rapture. So they're saying everything from chapter 4 on is something that's future to us today. Except for, of course, they have to acknowledge that chapter 12 refers to the birth of Jesus Christ. Okay? With, with that view, one, what needs to be recognized is that the majority of the book does not have any direct application for us today or for any other generation in history, including the people to whom it was originally written. That view says the majority of application is to people way, way down the road. And if you're a believer, you won't even be there to experience those events. You're going to already be gone. You're already going to be taken out. I don't, I don't find that very compelling myself. Because one proper rule of hermeneutic, hermeneutics is that it had to have immediate application to the current readers. It was given to them. Now, it doesn't mean the Bible doesn't contain prophecies. But those prophecies always had a current application to the readers. As a matter of fact, and this was something I've emphasized already, prophecy in the scripture is never given solely so that we can figure out details of what's going to happen in the future it is given for its ethical impact in the immediate time. Why has God told us that Jesus Christ is going to come back? You see this emphasized over and over and over again. You read 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, the book of Revelation. God says over and over again, Jesus is coming back, so be watchful, be ready, don't be caught sleeping. All of these things... No matter what camp we're in, we should agree on this. Eschatology isn't so that we can beat each other over the head and so we can nitpick about minor details. Eschatology is so that we know how we ought to live now. And so that we live in righteousness and purity now in this life. But again, based on the evidences that I already presented and my reasons for thinking these are parallel segments, I don't believe the futurist perspective is the correct perspective. And I know it's complex because it ties in with, with the book of Daniel and all the details there. But one thing that I've mentioned before just to give people information about historically how these things all fall out. Since it is so prominent today, and especially, you know, you turn on the radio and listen to preachers on the radio, etc., to hear the futurist perspective presented, some people think that this has been the predominant view throughout church history. No, it has not. No, it has not. As a matter of fact, it's, it's the newest perspective in church history to approaching the book of Revelation. The original futurist schema, which shows a gap between Daniel 69 and 70th year was not purported by anyone in history to our knowledge in none of the writings that we have until Francisco Ribera, a Jesuit Roman Catholic monk, presented it because the reformers were saying that the Pope was the Antichrist, the beast, in Revelation. And it was written 
as a polemic, as an argument against the reformers to say no, because the beast couldn't have come yet, the Antichrist couldn't have come because there's a gap. (laughs) So it was actually originally written by a Roman Catholic defending the Pope and saying that there could not be that because there's a gap there. Now that doesn't make the position wrong, but that is the historical context of when that system or position originated. Now the idea of a secret rapture and the church being secretly raptured out so God could refocus on Israel is not found in church history until the 1850s with Darby and some of his writings. So that's actually the the newest position regarding the millennium in church history. So this just, at least to help us understand, even though it's the most prominent view today, it's actually the newest kid on the block in regard to these historical views. Again, that doesn't make it wrong, but it at least helps us get some context. So, the preterist view, the historicist view, the futurist view. The preterist view is asking primarily, when did this happen to the Jewish people before AD 70? The historicist view is saying, when has this happened in church history up to this point? And when's the turning point and what will happen in the future? The futurist perspective primarily is saying, when is this going to happen in the future after Christ comes? And then the fourth perspective And this is the one that I would fall into based on what I presented about these different segments and how they're recapitulated, they're parallel with one another, is a spiritual or idealist perspective. This perspective says that the book of Revelation is written and these different visions were given in order to give us, the people of God, and the people of God at John's time, And the people of God in the future to us to give us abiding spiritual principles to help us live the way God would have us to live. That it is applicable to every one of us today like it was applicable to all of those that read it in the church at Smyrna and Laodicea and all these others then. That it will be applicable If the Lord delays for another thousand years, it will be applicable to those generations as well. That we look for the big picture, we find the principles, and the Lord intended to communicate those to us. Yes, it does contain some prophecy of future events to us. Yes, it does contain some things that have already taken prior to our time. But in all this, we find principles To answer the question, how then ought we to live? How then ought we to live? So, I pray this has been at least communicated clearly. If you have any questions about this, since we've covered a lot of technical information here, feel free to come ask me and I'll try and help you as best I can or direct you to a source that would be helpful to you. But I pray in all of this that this helps us to understand That the book of Revelation is not a book which we should fear. It's not not a book that is so puzzling that we just can't get anything from it. 
It's not a book that we say, oh, well, that's just really not that applicable to me because everything after chapter 4 refers to what's going to happen to people way down the road, but that doesn't apply to me. See, no, I think this makes Revelation imminently practical for us. And as we've already seen in chapters 4 and 5, and I pray we see in chapters 6 and following, we will find big principles that lead us to worship our God And lead us to stand firm in our faith, regardless of what this world throws at us. We will see over and over again that God is sovereign over the events of human history. Who is it that breaks the seals and all of these devastating things flow upon the earth? It is Christ himself who is carrying out the holy and righteous decrees of God. Everything that comes is filtered down through the fingers of heaven in the book of Revelation. As the martyrs cry out and they say, How long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? And they're given a white robe and they're told, Be patient, wait a little longer until the full number of your brethren have died. And as we look around us and we see people martyred for the faith, we can also say, God has a full number of those who are decreed to die for his glory. But there is a day of judgment coming. And those who wickedly oppress the people of God will be judged. 2 Thessalonians and chapter 1, Christ will come in flaming fire taking vengeance. And so in all of this, as we look at the book of Revelation and we look at our world and we say, this is... A messed up place. You've got, you've got people saying, I can be a boy, I can be a girl, I can be both, I can be nothing, I can be a dog, I can be whatever I want to be, and you have to embrace me and glorify me and praise me and protect me by law. And we're saying, we've lost our minds. We can look at the book of Revelation and say, things are not as they seem. God reigns. He is sovereign. He is in control. And we should not be surprised when the enemies of God act like enemies of God. (laughs) But God is sovereign. Christ has secured the victory. The battles will continue. But we win. Because Christ has triumphed. And he will come. And he will wrap it all up. And so the book of Revelation gives us hope, it gives us encouragement, it challenges us, and it teaches us how we ought to live right now. Right now. May God be glorified in it. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this glorious book. The beauty of it. I thank you and praise you for how applicable it is to us today. And I pray that you'll give us wisdom to see these principles that are contained therein and to rejoice in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.